HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here on The Food Scene today, we drink the rainbow with John Bonet, a writer whose career has spanned the globe in search of fermentable grapes. Time at the San Francisco Chronicle as their wine editor, a contemporary deep look at California's new wine, and senior contributing editor at Punch. Most recently, you've published The New Wine Rules. I did. And... What's fascinating about this book is, yes, you go deep. You are very studied on this subject of wine. Yet you write a small manual, and not, not small per se, but compared to the other tomes that you've written, with 89 simple rules about how to be a better wine drinker or understand wine as a topic better. But this has come from how many years of studying wine as a singular profession? <laughs> Good. Let's say 15 uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, but, but that's the thing is, is we were, we were talking about this just before you can, you can get infinitely deep into wine and, and many people do, and that's wonderful. But I think, I think all of us who do that tend to forget sometimes that you have to step back and, and a good portion of expertise is being able to still communicate with the vast majority of other humans on the earth. Uh, and, and to, to be able to have some dialogue that's not just at the this crazy you know elevated level that we we like to play in and so uh, yeah I mean um, I'm I'm glad you find the rules relatively simple because that was the that was the hope yeah approachable accessible in in this way that your your past is fascinating growing up on the upper 
West Side, yeah. um, moving to Westchester, but being an East Coaster who was kind of fascinated by the grape. Uh, the vineyards are obviously more so out West, Long Island's flourishing now, but being in New York, what kind of food and wine culture kind of cultivated your interest towards writing about wine? Well, the, the, the thing is that, that New York... We don't think much of New York vineyards, uh, and you know they're they're certainly uh, far in a far better place than they were when I was growing up in in the seventies and eighties, uh, and you know it, it's great to see that evolve. But yeah, it's 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 a different culture than you would have in and obviously in Paris and California, but in the same way that London has been the center of the global wine trade without until recently having vineyards, New York very much was the same for a long time. For for the United States, and it 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 was and and still is an extraordinary place to be into wine because you obviously have access to all of the great vineyards of Europe. You have uh, you know with a with a brief period where everyone fell out of love with them. A lot of people fell out of love with them. You have access to all the great wines of California, and so if you're if you're omnivorous, uh, omnibibulous. Omnib- uh, uh, <laughs> It's an awful word. Uh, if you like drinking everything, New York is a great place. And I, I, growing up is a little more tricky, but I, I grew up in a family that uh, that always did have wine on the table with dinner and uh, a father who was interested in, in Bordeaux and the Cabernets of Robert Mondavi and all sorts of things. And so, as I say, sometimes it, it really was osmotic. It just, you know, it was there for me to pick up and then forget all about and then, and then get back into. And New York was a great place to do it. Um, as frankly was Seattle where I lived for six years after New York, uh, before California, uh, at a time when their wine industry was coming up and when they had this extraordinary set of distributors who were bringing super cool wines in. And so, uh, so with New York, it was, it's, you know, culturally it was obviously focused very heavily on France and Italy, but that wasn't a bad formation. Uh, but you know, I certainly knew enough about California wine before the, before proper drinking age, uh, to, to have a good foundation. You know, obviously to, really know about terroir, you have to go to the place and be in the place and soak that in as well. But it's interesting that you say New York is such a drinking hub. And you recently wrote an article for Punch about why London wine bars are better than Paris. And it is kind of this cause and effect of distribution importing. So you don't actually have to be in the vineyard to drink the best wine anymore. Has that changed how you've approached the industry as a whole as a journalist? Well, there's the the proximity cuts Two, cuts two ways. Uh, there, there is obviously enormous value to being in Paris and, and learning about French wine uh, in the same way. Um, maybe less so. It's, it's come back, but uh, certainly uh, that being in San Francisco would be a, a good way, certainly today, maybe less like 10 years ago, uh, to learn about the, the contemporaneous California wines. Uh, but uh, you know, Paris. Became, Paris is kind of a perfect example, and and I love Paris. But uh, Paris is an amazing place to drink, but it's also very Parisian, and they have almost zero interest in wine that is not French. And so, versus London, and I think there are other things, but one thing that that does separate those two cities is London is a place that is is much more globalist in the way it sees wine. And so you obviously can drink all the great French wines, but you can drink all the great Italian, Spanish, American, Australian, New Zealand wines. And there is enormous value, I think, to 
to being at just enough of a distance that you don't lose perspective. And I mean, that is rule number one, drink the rainbow. Can you tell me what that idiom actually means to you? Sure. Uh, that came straight out of, out of the food world, out of the dietary world, and people talk about eating the rainbow. Uh, and as I was thinking about it, I, I've been, been struggling for a few years to try and find good ways to talk about the modern wine world, which, which has so transformed from the way that we were talking about wine even 10 years ago, which is to say 10 years ago, and I, and I always liked weird fringy wines. 10 years ago, it was really hard to justify ever putting those in print. And I, I was kind of the, you know, I was, uh, you not, were the weird fringy I was, guy. <laughs> I was the weird fringy guy, despite being the guy who was also supposed to be the authoritative voice Well, you did work at Caramore. Yeah. But we, we can talk about <laughs> another point. Um, but, uh, but so I, I, you know, what I realized was that, you know, there has to be some way to encompass all of the classics, but also all of all of the orange wines that have come along, all of the fringe regions, all of the kind of un, unappellated naturalist stuff that showed up. Uh, and our old buckets just don't work anymore. So Drink the Rainbow is basically saying, look, wine in terms of flavor, in terms of color, in terms of style exists now on this enormous spectrum. And a spectrum, of course, is a rainbow. And you have to... You have to, you, you will find things you love, but you have to at least be open to that full range because if you're, if you're not at least open to it, then, then you, can't see, you can't see wine as it is today. Uh, and honestly, when I looked at a lot of basic wine books that had been written uh, in the past, they, they were still stuck with the old buckets. Uh, and, you know, look, taxonomy is useful. Taxonomy helps us, especially in wine. It helps us organize the world. Uh, but, you know, in all things, and certainly in something as dynamic as the modern wine industry, that changes too fast to just say, I'm only drinking red wine. I'm only drinking Sauvignon Blanc. And just to stay with, with these old buckets that, that, that I, think, I think ultimately did people a disservice. Well, you first went to Napa in 1985 with your father, Drink Mondavi. And, you know, the 70s was kind of replete of Ridge, Stag's Leap, the apostrophe before the S1. Um, and that was big flavor over terroir. But you started exploring past Napa and Anderson Valley, Mendocino County, Boonville. What, what interests you outside of the Napa and maybe Sonoma wines? Well, to be fair, what I call big flavor didn't really arrive till the mid '90s. So, uh, in in the mid '80s, when I should say I was 12, so there's not that much Mandavi. I was running around Napa drinking, uh, but that was a classic era. It was maybe where an era where they'd almost gone too far to um, to sort of you know high acid, um, very lean wines, uh, and they you know they were roundly criticized. That's where the the criticism from Robert Parker started for a lot of California wine was in the the very lean style of the eighties. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so when it came to looking at, at California and arriving at California in two thousand six, kind of at the the nadir of of this of this big flavor moment. Uh, it was saying, okay, well, I know, I know what to me is classic in California. I understand some of the context going back to Ridge Montebello, going back to the old classic Mondavi or Stag's Leap or Montalena wines. Uh, and these were the wines that turned the world on to California in the first place. So are they still there? Is there still a spirit there? And then is there something beyond that? And it's, it's interesting because talking about the book, The New California Wine, 
putting that together, I think everyone thought, well, it's just going to be avant-garde, fringy stuff. And it it really wasn't. There's a, there's a vast amount of material in that book that really talks about classicism and how going back to field blends infidels, going back to uh, to these older cabernets, these these more clean, crisp chardonnays, and even something like trousseau, which everyone insists is fringe. Trousseau exists in California because it's 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 an old port variety, and people planted it not because the Jura was cool, but they planted it because they wanted to make California port. I mean, white was fringe at a point, too. Yeah. And then you look at New California wine, and you drop names like Abe Schoner of Scolium Project, uh, Steve Mathiason and his Semiones, and uh, Tokais, and then Hirsch, Arno Roberts, Ted Lemon. Now these feel 10, 15 years old. These feel like the staples of what California wine is. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about it. It's 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 funny because uh, some of the criticism that came out uh, when when we published the new California wine, which generally got a really good reception, but some some of the criticism that came was that you know these wines are all fringe. No one's going to be able to find them. This isn't the mainstream of California. They're never going to be significant in the market. And yeah, three, four years later, and these are now the wines that, 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 you know, that an enormous number of people outside of that kind of big shadowy supermarket world that, that we kind of some forget sometimes exists, but the people who are really interested in connoisseurship and in the finest of what any region makes. Yeah. Those are the wines that they're talking about. And, and even, I mean, I'm happy that the change happened so fast, but even I'm kind of shocked at how quickly the conversation shifted. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back with the new wine rules so you yourself can drink all these fabulous wines around the world. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm here with John Bonet, author of The New Wine Rules, as he pours a couple glasses, swirls them around, and sniffs them. So I, I, a lot of people know that kind of rote motion, but what are you actually doing when you do that? Sorry, let me get back to the microphone. <laughs> and there are three glasses, one for Elijah, I assume. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you never, you know, <laughs> our engineer and, you know, everyone should drink. Uh, it's it's reasonable time in the afternoon. Um, what am I doing? So um, swirling and sniffing. Um, the swirling is just to to literally to aerate the wine. I think it's it's we often forget that uh, when you when you uncork a bottle that it is you you are suddenly releasing back into oxygen uh, something that has been stuck in an inert or nearly inert environment for uh, you know at least several months often several years and so um, 
in order to get a sense of what it smells like, you just you need to expose it to oxygen. You're also sort of releasing uh, scent molecules into the bowl of the glass, and so you can smell it more easily. And uh, you know, sipping. Uh, uh, well, that's you know, yeah, that's that's swirling and sniffing, and then and then you drink. You know, I, I love how it's set up. And yes, there are 89 rules, and that's a lot of rules. But they actually, you can take one away, and it's distilled enough that if you just abide by that one, pretty darn good. But these eight sections are the basics inside the bottle choosing it how to serve and enjoy it storing and taking it places with food dining out and drinking in so it really gives you context of where and when you're drinking as well so you don't have to absorb and kind of hold all that information at once you can refer back to this thing and one of the greatest rules in this book alone is number three a good wine store employee is your best friend. Truth. So if I'm not hanging out with you, John, and I go into a store, that's who I should have my relationship with. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's it's no different than if you love books and you find a book sh- a bookstore that you love, or you like clothes and you find a boutique that you love. Uh, whatever 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 your curatorial uh, obsession is, uh, you know it's. Um, it's, it's a question of finding someone who can, who can guide you on that path and who, who you're going to take the time to begin this dialogue with, uh, that, that is admittedly hard in some places. We're super spoiled in New York and that, uh, we have a ton of great wine shops, uh, all over. And so whatever neighborhood you're in, you can find someone who, you know, who is going to take some time and they'll they'll help turn you on to new things. They'll help discover what you like, hopefully. Uh, there is still, it's it's much better now than even five years ago. There's still a little snobbiness. I mean, it's like, it's like that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that attitude from high fidelity where, uh, you know, um, male, mostly male insecurities manifesting themselves uh, as as superiority. Uh, so you get a little of that snobbishness in, in wine shops. But I think in general, if if you if you try a little bit, you can find somewhere that's going to just become a great resource. Uh, and look, they you know, a wine shop wants you to want to keep coming back. So it is frankly in their best interest to help you become a you know a good and better informed customer. So then who are your go-to employees? Where do you shop because you are an intimidating person, one of the foremost wine writers in the country. Do you well, tell I put them, my disguise yeah, on? Then. Yeah, yeah. I, but I wonder whether or not you walk in and you know the person, or if you don't, how you talk to them about what you want. Sure. It, it depends. I mean, there there are plenty of places where, you know, I, I have friends or, you know, we, we know people who, who work there. So, you know, if I walk into Chamber Street Wines, uh, it's uh, it's certainly not a, a blind shopping experience. You know, I they know me. I know them. Everyone kind of knows what what everyone likes, uh, and, and, you know, even look, even people who you, even people who you know who work retail, uh, they're going to have preferences that may not be your own, and they're not going to bat a thousand, and you have to know uh, when, when they're going to give useful advice and when you need to, to take it with a grain of salt. I'm thinking of a, f- a friend who had an Italian wine shop in, in San Francisco and who liked certain things, and I could tell, like, 80 or 90% of her advice was awesome, and the other 10% I just had to, like, you know, roll with it. Um, 
it it varies. You know, typically now when I shop, I'm going to I am I'm I'm either looking for one thing, and I'm I'll be like, look, I need you know X Y Z. You know, I need a bottle of mezcal usually, <laughs> and where is it? Um, but otherwise, you know, I'll poke around. Uh, I mean, at, at this point, I know most of the things I'm curious about, uh, and I am usually shopping to see kind of how people are pricing, how they're storing, you know, which distributors they're using. It's it's ways that no one in their right mind should have to shop, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know you it's I mean for me it's trying to coax out of someone the thing that gets them interested because you know I, I'm not asking you know the average wine shop clerk to to like throw down in a battle of wits uh, I'm just I you know I think almost anywhere I go and if, if, if I like the shop I want to know what got someone interested what what their perspective is what their philosophy of buying is uh, and you know the nice in some ways I mean depends on the size of the shop but in some ways the nicest is when you're in a small enough shop that you're more than likely talking to the owner mm-hmm. because you know those are the shops where someone has an idea of what they love and they're going to pursue it and they're going to try to turn their customers onto it. And, and that's what I want to know more about. I want to know how they got to those things and why they decided there was, you know, those things were commercially saleable enough to like go and open a wine shop. But you can kind of narrow in as a consumer too. There are tips like uh, a wine's price rarely reflects its quality, um, that, you know, grapes come in families and you can't really even judge a wine label like you used to. Uh, uh, so these are important factors to personally narrow these things down. So when you get into that conversation, yes, it goes from broad to specific, but you're already two steps beyond that initial question of what do you like. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you, you get some sense. I mean, if you listen to how people tell stories about the wines they're selling, you get a sense of do they love this wine because this wine is delicious or do they love this wine because someone came in and wowed them with a story. And stories are valuable. Stories make, make us like wine better. But at the same time, I also know now that you this, a great story is great, but a great story about a bad wine doesn't make the wine better. Well, I already skipped ahead and started sipping this wine, and I feel like you had a head start because you know my flavor profile. You know what I like to drink, and I was recently just in Beaujolais, and it is my favorite wine. If I were to ever get tattoos, it would be of the 10 Cruz, but... We can make that happen. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I object more to those than Megan does. Um, but this, it's transportive. And I almost don't need the story because it relates me back to being in that space on many of those cruise hills. But tell me what we're drinking. And you you talk about a few key wine terms. Uh, fruity, herbal, spicy, dry, mineral, animal, tannic, rustic. Which one of those... Is this? I think we got most of those. In yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, this is the Antoine Sunier 2016 Morgon. Morgon being being one of the ten crews of Beaujolais. Uh, Antoine is the brother of Julien Sunier, who is uh, one of the the recent stars of of the Beaujolais region. He uh, was trained in Burgundy. He he ran very briefly a kind of a, a large uh, Beaujolais negotiant firm, uh, and then sort of found himself um, liberated from. Um, the, the corporate world, what France is equivalent of the corporate world, uh, and ended up settling sort of just a, above the vineyards of Beaujolais up in the hills, built a farm, found some some land to, to farm organically. And his brother essentially came, started to do the same. Uh, his brother is based in Renier, which is uh, another of the crews just next to Morgon. Um, 
a little less well-known, but really lovely. Um, this is, um, I forget, I, I forget if this is from Charm. I believe this is a single, a single parcel Morgon, but, uh, but not everyone puts it on the label. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this to me was just, uh, a good example of, uh, of the new France as it is, but also this, this wine region that was not, considered super qualitative and, uh, for a long time uh, and is now really coming back as uh, a place that people have true connoisseurship in. Uh, and so, you know, the wine is, it's fun, it's super easy to drink, but it still has all of this nuance that you'd want in a good Burgundy. Um, it's obviously uh, the Gamay grape, as all Beaujolais is. Um, and, um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, it is fruity, uh, it is spicy, it has that, uh, you know, that iodine you often get uh, out of out of Morgon, as well as you know that that, that sort of dark stone, uh, slightly austere countenance, without giving up its fruitiness. There's just a little animal funk in it, um, just enough to make me kind of happy. It's you know very very faintly musky. I mean, I would say maybe the, all the barrels weren't pristine, which isn't you know within within tolerable levels. Um, but it also, and, and, uh, something, something I know is important to you. Um, it also has, um, really solid acidity, um, that's focused. It's not, sh it's not, it's tangy, but it's not sharp. The acidity isn't overwhelming. And in 16, it was a tricky year for that. Um, but the acidity is matched to the fruit and the savory characters. And, uh, that, you know, is for Beaujolais, but really for anyone that is this incredibly important piece of it that, that did become another rule in the book uh, that I think people don't think about because they're so focused on the fruit salad sometimes. Yeah, you know, it is one of those wines that not only drinks well by itself, but pairs so well with food because it has that acidity and how important that is. But, you know, I know that acid can go off the rails. There is VA, volatile acidity. There's problems in how people transport and store wine. Um, that's all in the book as well. You know, the, these conditions in which you keep your bottle. It's not just about having this great wine from this great winemaker and it's going to be great every time. Um, how do you store your wine? What wines do you have at your house and what do you pull out when? Um, we store our wine a number of ways. Uh, the least, the, w the way I would not recommend to anyone is just sitting on the floor because we've run out of space anywhere else. Um, we have a unusually large wine fridge for uh, for New York, but my my wife also works in wine, so we keep it well stocked. And I try to keep most of my wine either there or in our regular fridge. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with keeping wine in your regular fridge. Worst case, you're gonna have to warm it up a bit, but you might get some you might get some tartrate crystals. But uh, but if you don't feel like spending on a wine fridge, it's not bad. But I will say, even if you're in a tiny New York apartment and you can get an eight or twelve bottle wine fridge for a couple hundred bucks, you know, even if you're thinking just casually, the, the havoc that can be wrought on, on wine by leaving it in your kitchen without any, any refrigeration is, is really heartbreaking. And I'm not even talking about like the cheap wine you're picking up at the corner store. I see people who are very, very well-off New Yorkers who, um, you know, are buying the bottles that well-off New Yorkers can buy. And then they're literally putting 200, 300, $400 bottles of wine in built-in racks right above their fridge, which is probably the warmest place in the kitchen. I'm like, so you're, you are quickly making like, you know, $400 bottles of Koto, basically. Yeah, you know, it, it blows my mind that 
we're buying into these things such as wine or artisan ingredients. Um, my qualm mainly comes from pickles and people using really shitty vinegar for such great produce. But the same goes for buying a really great wine and treating it irresponsibly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like glassware where, you know, there's this obsession with, oh, yeah, everyone has to buy their Riedels and, you know, $50 glasses and whatever. And, like, you should have good glasses. Um, you don't have to have amazing glasses. You don't have to have one for every kind of wine. But you should have glasses that justify the amount that you're spending on wine. In the same way, you should have something to store wine that justifies the amount that you're spending on wine. And and it's, I mean, can you imagine, just just to sort of extend this, can you imagine if if people were, were buying you know, craft beer, much less crappy beer. Like, you know, no one, no one is buying a six pack of Bud and just leaving it on the counter. They're putting it in the fridge. And yet, why do we think that somehow <laughs> it's okay to like bring home a bottle of wine and and just leave it out to the to to the the cruelties of the modern apartment? That is, that is very true. I don't think I've ever. I have a very good imagination too, but I've never kind of put those things together that we actually condition our Budweisers over. We do our right? our. You Beaujolais. go to the store yeah. and you buy it out of the out of the cooler. Yeah, and you have this like transport time that you try to minimize, and then you throw it in the fridge. And this is what we do for like a, a five dollar, six dollar six pack. Uh, and yet, wine somehow, you know, we we put you know we put we put wine racks on the counter right next to our oven. One of my favorite rules uh, of this whole book is probably the penultimate thing. Um, if all else fails, bubbles. Yeah. Now, there's a wide world of bubbles, too, from, you know, pet gnats to champagne. But why is that rule so kind of important and omnipotent? I, I don't even know that there's great logic there. I just think, you know, bubbles make people happy. Uh, they don't... We, Nobody drinks enough. Uh, Prosecco is honestly, for, for all its many ills, has made a good dent into getting people to drink fizzy things more often. Uh, and Petnat has, has this kind of craft beer-like cred that I think makes people more relaxed. But, you know, the same, same person who will spend $35 on a bottle of Petnat won't spend 36 or 37 on a bottle of champagne, uh, which is weird. And it just, you know, look, all, all fizzy wine is is wine with fizz it's it's not you know it, it doesn't need to be serious and important it doesn't need to be the celebratory thing it is to my point about acidity it tends to be higher in acidity anyway but between the acidity and the co2 it cleanses your palate which is a really important part of what uh you want when you're having wine with food which is you want you want to sort of you want to taste things and then the wine helps you to reset it rebalances your palate the acidity helps you digest and then you know and then you you're ready for your next bite uh and you know even if you're not even if you're having it on the porch in uh you know in a govino like it's fun who doesn't like drinking things with bubbles you said you know it, it kind of cleanses your palate so it's obvious to pair food with that. Uh, I was reading in your book that there was a gaffe early on in your career. You were a little cocky and it was about Barbera and pizza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was in a really good pizza place in Seattle actually. And my friend, we were going through the wines and, and he wanted a bottle of Barbera. I was like, no, no, no. Barbera is way too tannic for pizza. <laughs> of course, Barbera is the, is, is the, is the, the great variety with almost no tannin in it. Naturally, it's it's not it's not a, a strange thing. It's just it happens. The skins don't really have many uh, many uh, phenols in them. So uh, so I was yeah I was talking out uh, part of my anatomy that's not my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> but you know that that is an Italian wine in a region where pizza is prevalent. Yeah. Uh, I drink 
Beaujolais Cruise with pizza. Totally. I drank champagne with pizza. Is there a limit in what you can drink with pizza? Not really. Um, you know, I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't drink like vintage port with pizza. I think that's not going to be pleasant for anybody. Uh, and you know, oaky Chardonnay, I don't think is going to be super good, but look, the thing is, the thing that people often forget about pizza is that it is this great balance of food groups. It has fat, it has acidity, uh, it has some sugar from tomatoes. Um, it has the, the starchiness obviously of the dough. And so, uh, it is well-made. It is this perfectly balanced food stuff. And so Bubbles do one great thing to it. Beaujolais does another. Uh, there is, uh, we, we disagree about this, but I have heard reasonable arguments that you can have um, like a cabinet Riesling, an off-dry Riesling with it, because what do Americans who aren't drinking wine drink with pizza uh, quite often is Coke. And Coke has a lot more acid even than most Riesling in it. And it has a ridiculous amount of sugar. And so, uh, you know, anyone who grew up going to a pizza parlor will have a palate somewhat trained on fatty, tomatoey, cheesy food with sweet, super high acid uh, things to drink. Served at a white temperature. Yeah. Yeah. With all the ice cubes in there. Exactly. Um, Out of a pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lastly, I, I was just flying back from San Francisco where you lived for many years and I know you made the bi-coastal trek and in doing so, you must have had a glass of wine uh, or two on the plane and you now consult for JetBlue Airways and what do you drink on a plane? Why? And uh, how, how do you pair it with the food that is often so terrible? <laughs> <laughs> There's great food. Yeah. Anyway. So you obviously you need to fly JetBlue yeah. more. Um, no, I, so, you know, the, the question obviously should be, am I flying JetBlue or am I flying somebody else? Uh, although, you know, even on JetBlue, I usually don't get to sit in the front of the plane. Um, because that's that's where the paying customers sit. <laughs> uh, you know, if if I happen to be on board a, a JetBlue Mint flight, uh, I will obviously do do some quality control. It's very important, uh, and and usually taste through whatever's on board. Otherwise, uh, not to throw shade on on other airlines, but I will. Um, I I honestly usually drink either Bloody Marys or whiskey uh, because neither of them can get screwed up. Bloody Marys, there's a whole long complicated taste theory about Bloody Marys and altitude, but um, your taste capacities are obviously diminished when you're on an airplane. And so uh, it helps to, to punch through. It's my treat. Uh, you know, if there's actual real champagne, I'll drink that. Um, but even there, sometimes I can taste that it's like you can taste the, the sweetness come out of it. Um, more often than anything, yeah, I would say it's like uh, Woodford Reserve and soda, uh, <laughs> because I know I know that the quality control was done uh, at the head end, so to speak. Wait till you hit the ground to go bottoms up. And lastly, the new French wine, a book that you are doing that will be released in 2019, will do the same for what you did for California. And I can't be more excited. But who who are the most exciting people that are going to kind of be mainstays in the industry in the next five to ten years that we don't know about now in France? Yeah. Oof. Um, I don't know that there's there's people we completely don't know about, uh, but I think that in you know in almost every region you see people who are who are coming up. Uh, Antoine Sunier is certainly a good example in Beaujolais, where you know he's a little beyond the current roster of stars. He's really talented. Uh, I think you see people like Chantrev and Emily Berteau in Burgundy uh, who are really rising and become super, super impressive. People like Julien Bro in Muscadet uh, or um, Antoine Sanzé in Sommer Champigny. 
Um, Don Ju Bonacy down on the Roussillon because I'm working on my Roussillon column. <laughs> uh, so there's, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think there's a still a very narrow canon of, of people who we all think of as the superstars. Uh, but you know, there's going to be there's going to be hundreds of people in this book. Uh, but I th- one of the things that I'm doing is identifying the rising stars who uh, who who are the names who you know. 2020, 2021, 2022, something like that, uh, will really have become established. And most importantly, three rules for me, drink the rainbow, make sure you befriend a good wine store employee, and if all else fails, bubbles. Bubbles. (laughs) The new wine rules by John Bonet. Thank you for being on. Hey, thanks so much. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big thank you to Tavern Inn for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tattashore for engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.